So I am at Exodus chapter 15, where we read, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Church, when it comes to Bible study, whether or not that's your own personal Bible study, which I hope you're doing daily, or corporate Bible study, it has been said that with Bible study, context is king. That is, you've got to consider the flow of thought, what goes on before and after, and what's, what's being said in the, in the book. Certainly, that is true in a passage like I just read. We need to re- stop and remind ourselves, okay, what just took place? Well, it was the greatest event in the Old Testament. When the people of Israel, who had been in bondage for 400 years in Israel, Moses leads them out finally, and there's great triumph. But they get to the Red Sea, and all of a sudden, the Egyptian army, led by Pharaoh, comes storming after them, bent on destruction. They are trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. It looks hopeless. And God splits the Red Sea so his people can go through it. And when the Egyptian army tries it, the waters come all cover them completely. Can you imagine being one of those Israelites? You just went through the Red Sea with that water all around you. You get to the other side, the Egyptian army is still coming after you, and the waters cover them over. And you breathe the biggest sigh of relief you've ever breathed. Maybe tears of joy come to your eyes. Your children are rescued. Your family is rescued. You, you, are, you are rescued from the jaws of disaster. Can you imagine the jubilation that you feel? Can you imagine that, that some of those folks were that Jewish bent, you know, began dancing and, and praising God? Can you imagine what they're feeling? Now, it's hard for us to put ourselves in that scene. Let me just give you a glimmer. Let me give you a glimpse of it. In sports contests, when our team, at the end of the game, has a breakthrough victory at the end, you know, how do we respond? I mean, it's just jubilation. Now, last month, there was the NCAA championship game right here in Houston. Probably some of you were at it. Villanova versus North Carolina. I know there aren't many Villanova fans in here, but, you know, you get the idea. And with 2.9 seconds to go, Villanova is behind, and they get the ball. Watch what happens. They go length of the court with Archie Diakono. Three seconds at midcourt. Jenkins gives it to Jenkins for the championship. Yes! Oh, no! Oh, no! The national champion. 
Jenkins hitting the winner at the buzzer. Jim, they're going to check it. I thought it was good live, but how about those onions? A counter. Double order sauteed if it's good. Well, they're going to check the clock. If there's any time, and boy, they've got a problem on their hands if they do. Because the streamers, the confetti, they would have to clear it. Watch this. And the recognition of Arch finding Jenkins. Miscommunication it's by out. North Carolina. It's out. It's, it's, good. it's, it's good. all the way. How about that? All righty. I don't trivialize Exodus 15, but, but you get the idea. I mean, can you imagine the jubilation those Villanova fans felt? I mean, they were just overwhelmed with joy. By the way, I noticed that some of you gave more attention during that 20 seconds than you ever have to one of my sermons. So, you know, I'm, not, I'm trying not to be hurt. But, uh, Jay, you were enjoying that a little too much over there, buddy. Uh, can you imagine, though, those Israelites? They have been completely rescued from disaster. And what they must be feeling inside. And they cannot not worship. They just can't. I mean, God has delivered them so incredibly, so tangibly, they cannot not worship. And they just burst out in praise. And notice some of the language that's used in verses 1 and following. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. Now, that's three times sing, song, sang in about two lines. And then the start of the next verse, in verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. I mean, they are singing, can't you imagine it, with all their hearts. Do you think that any of them are kind of, you know, just kind of leaning back with their arms crossed like this, singing to God? Uh-uh. It is all out, like when your team wins that game. And they just cannot not express to God their deep gratitude and love and the praise that's through his name. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation, my deliverer. And they're just worshiping God, no doubt, at the top of their lungs. Now, when you come through something like that, that's probably just the most natural thing. But some of us have gotten a glimmer of the greatness and goodness of God in what God did for us on a cross when he sent his own son, who is a human being like us, but yet he is somehow the eternal God come down to this earth. And when he hangs on that cross, do you know what he is doing? He is taking all of your sins, every thought, word, deed that you ever will do uh, in history, and he's placing them on Jesus, and he's paying for them so you don't have to pay for them, so that your sins are washed white and you get not only the salvation, you know, from the marauding army, but you get salvation forever, eternally. And some of us have been ambushed by the grace of God, and we cannot not worship. We are hopelessly addicted to loving Jesus and worshiping him. And it is interesting to me, not only do we have four times the word sing in some form right here in a few lines, but 99 times the Psalms command us Sing to the Lord. I'm just reading yesterday. I'm praying through in my devotionals. Psalm 104, and I come to verse 34, I think it is. And the psalmist says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing to the Lord while I have my breath. He could not keep from singing. Now, when we worship in song, 
We are not only obeying God's explicit commands, but, but why is this so important to God? Well, I think because it has to be, because music has such unique power, not just to move our minds, but to stir our souls so deeply. I mean, music is the, is the language of love. That's why we have this untold number of love songs out there. Uh, but if you're going to sing a love song to anybody, sing a love song to Jesus. Love Him. Sing a love song to God. Music has this unique power. It's, it's emotional. It's passionate. That's why even the most non-musical among us love music. And sometimes we, we, we love music in other areas, but of any place, we ought to love it. It is in the worship of our God. You know, I've often said that, um, you know, I probably have the worst voice here in the sense that sometimes folks will say, you know, I think he's a little bit off tune there, and I have no idea what they're talking about. You know, off tune, on tune, you know, what is that? I don't hear it. And, and I think God uh, put your pastor uh, musically challenged so that you can see that not being musical is no excuse for not worshiping because I'm a worshiper. I love to sing to Jesus. I sing to Jesus every day, and I'm not going to stop singing to Jesus. And if you are giving yourself a pass or a bye because you're not very good singing, then enough of that. That is no excuse. God doesn't care. Sing your love song to Jesus. And if you would not go to a game like that and being a Villanova fan and sit on your hands when your team wins, then don't sit on your hands with Jesus. Because what he did is so much bigger. It's so much bigger. You're a worshiper. You're worshipers. I know that. Now, when you sing from your heart, this is what happens. It's almost magical. Uh, there is power in it. There is spiritual power when you sing to God because your eyes get riveted upon God. You see him as he is. He pours out his presence. And do you know what he does? He will transform your soul. When you actually open your heart to God, you're singing to God from your heart. You're not just kind of making time until, you know, the preaching gets up. But when you're singing to God from your heart, your soul gets transformed. And that's why it is so important. In fact, we could just say other things about it. You know, praise in general. Uh, here are some of the things that happen. Now, you don't need anything to happen because uh, worship is an end in itself. I mean, if nothing else happened except God gets praise, that's enough. But six other things at least happen. When you worship God, your eyes are lifted off of your problems to your God, and we need that. Sometimes we get just so preoccupied and overwhelmed and burdened with our problems, we need to get our, get our eyes up to our God who is bigger than our problems. That's one thing. Second thing is that the presence of God is poured out. That, that is, when God's people gather together and worship Him, there is a stronger sense of the, of the presence of God in the room. Where we see that best, frankly, is Wednesday night. And I've wondered why that is, because it's a smaller group on Wednesday night, but I think it's because uh, on Wednesday nights, the folks that come, they're all worshipers, and, and God just loves it, and he shows up in a strong way. But you see it here, too. Thirdly, a third thing that happens is our faith is strengthened as we worship. Now, think about it. You are blessing God and proclaiming how great he is. Augustine said you're, you're praying twice in song and in your heart. And you're focused on God, how good and how great he is, and that strengthens your faith. You want your faith strengthened? Be a worshiper. 
You know, in your car, be a worshiper. In your private devotions, worship the Lord. Certainly here together with all your heart. Fourth thing that happens is that God's peace falls upon you. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that when your heart is in it and you're worshiping God, no matter what you're going through, there is a sense of the peace in the presence of God. And it is rich. So, some of you really struggling with anxiety these days. I mean, all of us at times do that. Worship the Lord. Get that right praise song out there and go for it. Fifthly, very importantly, when you worship, demons flee. They're not going to hang out when, when we're worshiping Jesus. They're going to be running out of this place. And that's spiritual warfare. So the first thing in spiritual warfare, worship the Lord. And then the final thing is when you worship the Lord, your love for God is going to grow because you're singing your love song to him and reflecting on how good he is, and your love is going to grow. Now, that's big. Church, those six things are big. And if none of them happen, God is worthy of our worship. But all these other things happen. God has called you and me above all other things to be worshipers because worshipers of God are lovers of God. So none of this, you know, oh, I don't like that song. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. It's, it's about God. Give your heart to it. Sing your love song to Jesus. Okay, there's more here. Now in verse 3, he's got some strong language. He says, he's worshiping God. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation, etc. And then he says, the Lord is a warrior. He's a warrior. The Lord is his name. He is a warrior. Why does Moses and these people worshiping God? Because he's a warrior. Well, it's because God will fight for you just like he fights for his people. I mean, in Exodus 14, 14, right before they head out to the Red Sea, what does Moses tell them? He says, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Just God's going to fight for you. Do you know that's how God treats you and me? He fights for you. He fights for you. Some of you came in here this morning, you felt so discouraged. You felt yourself so discouraged, you know, I just can't hardly fight for myself. That's okay, God can fight for you. He will fight for you. When you're in some of your, your worst struggles and challenges and problems and you can't see your way out, God will fight for you. He fights for you. You're at war all the time. Whether or not you know it, you're at war. It's kind of like Star Wars in that sense. I mean, one good thing about Star Wars is that it shows a universe at war. That's the world we live in. There is spiritual, unseen largely, spiritual warfare all the time. He's fighting for us. You don't have to fight for yourself. He'll fight for you. There is a movie that I admit it is, is too violent, but there's several good things about it. It's called Taken. Remember those one, two, three, but one was particularly good. And there's several good things about the movie. First of all, a little movie review here. Leon Neeson is an excellent actor. Secondly, um, it shows you the, the evil of human trafficking and the reality of it. And we need to know about that. Thirdly, I love how it depicts Leon Neeson's role as a father fighting for his daughter. You know, whatever it takes, I'm going to fight for my daughter. That is God's heart for his kids. He will fight for you. You need somebody to fight for you? It is God above all else. The Lord is a warrior on behalf of his people. He will fight for you. Now, one of the things that makes this passage in 
I want to call it Psalm 15 because it is a psalm. That word means song. Exodus 15 is a song. In fact, it's one of the best psalms in the Bible. But one of the great things about it is just one of the best places in the Old Testament to depict who God is. And everything else flows from that. How we see God will determine your joy level, your worship level, your trust level, how you treat other people, how you see yourself. It affects everything. In fact, I often quote A.W. Tozier, who said, what comes into your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about us. He is so right. Okay, now we've got to see God as He is. Well, we get that in passages like this and all through the Bible. We see, for example, here's some of the things about who God is. In verse 1, He says, I will sing to the Lord. Now, one of the things that we have learned in the book of Exodus, if you've been with us, is that whenever you see in the English Bibles the word LORD in all caps, that means it's referring to a very specific name of God, Yahweh. That is a specific personal name rather than the generic name for God. It's the difference in calling me Pastor, my title, and Jeff, my name. Now, God says to Moses when he calls him in Exodus 3, and Moses asked him, well, what, what, what's, what's your name? What shall I tell them? He says, tell them this. I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And in the Hebrew language, that's going to come out as Yahweh. And, and what this name uh, connotes and denotes is that this is the God, this is the rescuing God. This is the kind of God who will fight for his people. This is the kind of God who rescues his people out of slavery. This is the God who it has some mystery about him. I am that I am. He's independent. He's sovereign. He's eternal. He's immutable. He is unlike anybody else. This is who God is. Every time in your English translations, you see the word, Lord, all caps, just think of Exodus 3 and the whole book of Exodus. In fact, every time we sing a song like Hallelujah, that's Yahweh. It's short for Yahweh. Or Hallelujah. Short for Yahweh. We're praising the God who rescues his people. The great and the holy God. I am that I am. I don't reference myself with anybody else. I am that I am. He's God. Okay, I'm the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. Now, let me be careful here. I don't want you to ever think that you can't trust your English translation because that is crazy. Uh, we have 50 great translations. Every translation is great. But, occasionally, the original language, which brings a little bit of extra insight on it. And this is a place. Because in the original language here, this is what he's, originally, he's, he's literally saying. He says, rather than for he has triumphed gloriously, he is saying, for he is gloriously glorious. The same word repeated, which in the Hebrew makes it, man, I really want you to hear me now. He is gloriously glorious. Do you get the feeling of what he's saying, of what they are saying? He's saying, I do not have the words to express the glory and the beauty and the splendor of our God. He is gloriously glorious. He's so great. He's so big. He's so marvelous. He is the glorious God. Isaiah 6.3, we sang from that song earlier, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. By the way, God of hosts, God of angel armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
Of course, we would put it, the whole universe is full of His glory, His beauty, His excellence, His, his perfection. Dwight Edwards is a church planner for our church in the Rice area. I, I like the way he describes glory. He says, I like to call it His spectacularness. His glory is His stunning radiance, the overwhelming splendor of His excellence, His incomparable and exquisite beauty. God's glory carries the full weight of all His attributes. The Bible likens the glory to images such as blinding light, raging fire, crashing thunder, flashing lightning, and a magnificent rainbow. Whatever else it may be, one thing is for sure, God's glory is awesome in appearance. He's glorious. He is gloriously glorious. They've seen His glory. They cannot not worship. And if you and I have seen the wonder, the sheer amazing grace, the wisdom, the beauty, the holiness, the justice, the righteousness of what God did with the gospel on a cross, bursting out of an empty tomb on the third day, then we too cannot help from saying He is gloriously glorious. He's just so amazing. He has more in verse 2. He has five quick titles. The Lord is my strength, power. He's my song, that is the one I love. He's become my salvation, my rescuer. This is my God, you know, everything there, God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. He's a warrior. We've already seen that. Down in verse 6, he says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Again, going back to glorious in power. And his power especially shows his glory. Now, do you know that when we talk about other beings, either human beings or angelic beings having power, we're using it kind of in quotes because all power in the universe belongs to God. The only way that any demon of hell has any power is because God get, uh, loans a little bit of power for a time. The only reason that any U.S. president or a Russian dictator or anybody else has any power is because God uh, loans a little bit of power for a time. And when he withdraws his hand, they collapse. Satan is on this leash, and it's like he's got a leash around his neck. And, 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 you know, he can only go where God allows him to go. Never, ever be afraid of Satan. I mean, God has all the power. Sometimes believers almost begin to think, because Satan is, is, is the leader of the evil armies, sometimes people sort of think that, wow, Satan and God are kind of counterparts. Look, never, ever, ever think of Satan and God as counterparts. God has no counterpart. Satan's counterpart is the highest of the good angels. Maybe it's Michael. But Michael and Lucifer, or Satan, they're little pipsqueaks. They're right down here. They're just little pipsqueaks. And the infinite God just towers above everything else in the universe. God has no counterpart. Never, ever be afraid of Satan because Jesus Christ is in you, the living God. That's how we see God. He's glorious in power. Or verse 7 where we see in the greatness of your majesty. You're robed in majesty, the Psalms say. He's, he's just full of majesty. Greatness of his majesty. Or 11. I, love, I like 11 the best, I think. 
Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Now, they had grown up in a world and a culture in Egypt. They had all these gods, the Nile God, the, the, the locust God, all these gods. And God just showed them they were no gods at all. Who is like you, O God? Or, O Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the God who rescues us. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the answer no one. No one at all is like God. Now, there is a theological term for that, and it is the simple word that we have sang about earlier, holy. The word holy, at its root, does not mean no sin. It's included, but that's not the heart of it. The word holy certainly does not mean anything like this kind of self-righteous behavior. Holy describes that God is so far above and different and transcended over everything else in the universe that he is unique completely. In fact, we could say this. God is truly incomparable. Incomparable. No one can be compared. Who is like you, O Lord? Nobody. You're incomparable. Who is like you among the... Nobody. God is so much greater than everything else. And so... When we come to those difficult dilemmas in life that are truly difficult, I mean, children dying, enormous suffering, the reality of hell, I mean, that's a big one. When we come to those problems, we should not be surprised that we do not fully understand all that our God allows or does. We can take some humility before a God that great. But we look into the face of Jesus, and we know enough to trust him that he's good. He's the God who loves us and died for us on the cross. We know enough to trust him. Nobody is like God. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Now, we need this one because we have so expanded and elevated our view of God. Oh, but he loves us. He's crazy in love with us. The way I love my grandkids. The way you love your grandkids. You got them. Kids. Um, I love you with a steadfast love. The English translations, you know, kind of vie with each other. You know, how in the world are we going to translate this Hebrew word? Because it combines the idea of tender love and, and, and a fierce loyalty. So, the NIV, I think, does unfailing love. Somebody does faithful love. ESV does steadfast love. One version does loving kindness. Sometimes it's mercy. It's, it's this love for us that will not stop. He will never love you any less than he loves you right now. And never anymore because his love is perfect. He's the God of steadfast love. Now, one more little section in the psalm before we get to the end. In verse 14, he talks about the response of other peoples when they hear this word. He says in 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Now, he's using past tense. They just got out of the Red Sea. He doesn't mean that they've already heard the word. He means it is so certain how they're going to respond, I can use the past tense. The Bible does that at times. It says, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. I mean, they're scared to death. 
Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. What he's saying is that the word is going to spread about what's happened here today at the Red Sea and what God did with the ten plagues, and people are going to recognize there is no God like this God. Now, does that happen? You Bible students, does that happen? Well, they travel 40 years in the wilderness. Takes them a long time. They got a lot of sin. And they finally get to the land, the Jordan River in Joshua 2, and they're going to cross the river. And they cross the river, and the first city there is still there, by the way, is Jericho, oldest city in the world. And they're going to take Jericho. And so Joshua sends two spies into the city to check it out. And they encounter a woman that we know that is Rahab. And what does Rahab say to them? It's like she's reading from Exodus 15, and she had never seen it. In verse 2-9, chapter 2-9 of Joshua, Rahab says to the two spies, I know, that the, I know that the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the God of Israel, has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the kings of the Amorites. That's just what Moses and the people sang in Exodus 15. Their hearts will melt away because God is so great. The passage ends. The greatness of God is just seen everywhere in that marvelous song. Um, the people are going to now set out on their journey at the end of the passage, and let's just touch on that a little bit. There's something we need to hear, hear need to see. In verse 22, they start out. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Lee's been to the, to the Arabian Peninsula. Some of you have been there. Three days in the desert, no water. I mean, it's a big deal. Two and a half million people. I mean, it's drastic. Big problem. When they came to the to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, we can have a little empathy, can't we? But on the other hand, they've just seen God do incredible things. Uh, interesting, the next line says that Moses is calling out to God. Verse 25, and he... Moses cried to the Lord. They were over here grumbling, and Moses is over there praying. Now, church, I just got to be honest with you here for a few minutes, because you were born in sin, and all of us are just too good at grumbling. We are. We don't have, to, you know, nobody had to teach us that. We just were are just naturally uh, good at it. And, and, and sometimes, even those of us who are people of faith, we act not like Moses crying out to God, but like the Israelites complaining and grumbling. And it's not that we can never recognize, okay, this isn't good, this isn't wrong. It's not that. We never put on a, a dishonest view of reality. But it's a spirit of grumbling and complaining and murmuring and squawking. And it is born of a heart of ingratitude. Show me the complaining person who's always complaining. I'll show you an ungrateful heart. But... Show me a worshiper 
that person is going to be praying and calling out to God. And do you have the spirit of a, of a squawker or the spirit of a worshiper? Moses, I mean, uh, Luther said this. He said, the devil is a chronic grumbler. But the Christian ought to be a living doxology. You know, again, we come back to worship. The priority of worship, the glory of worship, the beauty of worship, because God is worthy of our worship, and we need it. So what do we complain about? Well, if you're a boss, you complain about your employees. If you're an employee, you complain about your boss. Everybody's complaining about their co-workers. You're complaining about the weird neighbor that you got. We're complaining about the traffic in Houston, the construction in Houston, uh, the, the presidential candidates that we've got here in this country. We're, we're complaining against, uh, about taxes, and we're complaining against all the rain and, and, and all kind of things. Uh, do you have a complaining spirit, or do you have a worshiping spirit? Lord, I call out to you. Worshipers call out to the Lord. So, people of faith cry out to God. Verse 25, and he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet, and the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them. By the way, you know God tests you. God allows you to be in hard circumstances at times. At times, he puts you in hard circumstances to see if you'll trust him or not, or you're going to be a complaining spirit, grumbling spirit like the Israelites. So, some of you are being tested right now. I'd say half of us are. Probably, in some way, all of us. How are you doing your test? If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Isn't that sweet? I, I'm the Lord your healer. Sometimes you're in a prayer circle, perhaps, and you hear a Christian pray, you know, Jehovah Rapha, that's from the Hebrew word Rapha, heal. He's the healer. He's, he's Yahweh the healer. He's the God who heals. Tolkien, I know my son-in-law Mike Grenz is a huge Tolkien fan. You know, he's behind the Hobbit movies. He's the, the man, by the way, whom God used to lead C.S. Lewis to Christ. Tolkien put it this way in one of his writings, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. You're going to know who the king is when he's healing left and right. A couple of weeks ago, a couple of Wednesdays ago, it was a week and a half ago, we had all of our partners in from around the world and our missionaries as well as ministry partners. And, and there's a man here, Gregory Benjura. I think Gregory's been here three times. He's a close friend of, of Ken Womack, one of our elders that he's visited with in Sierra Leone. Now, Sierra Leone is where Gregory Benjura has pastored for some years. Gregory looks to me 50. And so that means that Gregory was probably pastoring during the brutal uh, genocides in Sierra Leone where ch children were equipped with AK-47s to kill people. And it was just brutal, 10 years of civil war. And then in the last couple of years, they had the Ebola crisis. So Sierra Leone has been through so much. Gregory Benjura has faithfully loved Jesus and loved his people throughout that time. Now, Gregory, uh, there's villages around that are Muslim villages, like in much of Africa. And he was training some of his young uh, uh, students about uh, sharing their faith. And they went to a Muslim village to share their faith. But when they got to that village, the Muslim village was all closed. They wouldn't allow them in to pray because the chief's wife had died that morning. In Africa, they're going to probably bury within 24 hours because they don't have the embalming stuff. 
So the whole village is mourning, the chief's wife. They're all Muslim. And, and, and Gregory finds out they can't go in. And so, okay, um, we understand. And starts to leave. One of his young students says to him, well, Pastor Manjura, I, I see in the Bible where God can raise the dead. Why don't we go ask if we can pray that God would raise his wife? And, you know, Gregory was kind of put on the spot. You know, what, what do you say? And so he said, okay, we'll go ask. And so he goes into the chief and says, chief, can we, uh, can we pray for your wife that God would heal her? And he said, there's no need. She has been dead for several hours. They had her lying out in the back room on a table. But um, Gregory appealed to him. He said, well, 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 we'd like to pray anyway. Could we just pray? He said, well, okay. And he took three of his students and the chief. They go back in the back room. And Gregory begins praying. In the name of Jesus, for God to raise this chief's wife off that table. So they're praying, and she sneezes. And then she sits up at the waist, and God raises her from the dead. And, and they give her back to the chief. He becomes a Christian, of course. <laughs> and the whole village becomes Christian. And the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. Amen. I know we don't always see dramatic healings like that. God is God. We're not. But he heals people all the time. I would not be standing up here if God had not miraculously healed me when I was four years old. Some of you could say similar sorts of things. If you are here this morning and you think, well, that happened in the Bible that doesn't happen anymore. God cannot do that. Then let me say to you, you're guilty of what 2 Timothy 3 says, that you hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. That the God of the Bible has no limits to what he can do. And he does, in fact, raise people from the dead from time to time. And he heals people all the time. And you better be calling out to God to pour out healing because he can do it. He can do it. In Revelation 15, there is a closing. In Revelation 15, there is a reference to this song, or this chapter. In verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, now, before the Lamb came, the, the worship focused around the Exodus. After Jesus dies on a cross, I mean, all the attention goes to Jesus. We focus on the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Church, if, if, if Exodus 15 is anything, it is a call to worship. It is a call to be worshipers. Because God, the Father, is looking for worshipers. Because worshipers are those men and women, boys and girls, who love Jesus. And they are chasing after him. They're singing their love songs to Jesus. They're praising him. They're seeking him. And especially for what he has done in our lives, above all else, for sending his son to die on a cross. We worship our God for a Savior who rescues us from our slavery to sin. God's calling you. He's calling me to love him back with worship. And may it be for you 
like those guys in Exodus 15 that you cannot not worship. We're going to respond as we normally do with communion. But I hope it has a special meaning for you this morning. Because when it comes to communion, we look hard and thank God deeply for a Savior whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. And if you're newer here, this is how it's going to mechanically look. When the worship team begins leading us worship, people will slip out of their seats and make their way to one of the communion tables across the front or the middle. And folks will grab the cracker and the cup, and they will either go back to their seats, or they will stand aside, or they will come and kneel. And then, that's the key part, and then we will sort of get ourselves settled from all the distraction around us, and we will breathe a prayer to God, something like this. Father, thank you so much for a Savior that his body was crucified for me. Lord, thank you so much for a Savior whose blood covers all my sins. Lord, thank you. Would you stand with me? Lord God, it is not out of ritual, but out of profound gratitude that we celebrate communion this morning. And Lord God, I pray that anybody in this room who's never received Jesus as their Savior, that right now they breathe a prayer, Jesus, come and save me. Come and save me. Do it right now, friend. Do it. And Lord God, may we not be lukewarm, self-obsessed people, but may we be worshipers of our great God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.